I am unwilling to give up, that I will start over from scratch as many times as it takes to get where I want to be. I want to be. You just want to make sure you will get knocked down, but just make sure you don't get knocked out, knocked out. So your only choice should be go focus on what you can control, control, control. Hi, everyone, and welcome to the Kara Golden Show. Join me each week for inspiring conversations with some of the world's greatest leaders, We'll talk with founders, entrepreneurs, CEOs, and really some of the most interesting people of our time. Can't wait to get started. Let's go. Let's go. Hi, everyone. It's Kara Golden from The Kara Golden Show, and I'm so excited to have my next guest here. She is a friend, and she is the founder and co-CEO of one of my favorite Bay Area companies called Minted, Miriam Nafisi. Uh, And she is, like I said, this incredible, incredible leader uh, who started this company, Minted, around actually a couple of years after uh, the company I founded, Hint. And so we've been crossing in a lot of different uh, circles together. And uh, we were both just talking about YPO as well. And uh, she's just absolutely amazing. So prior to starting Minted, Miriam, we're going to get you to talk a little bit more about this, but you had actually started another uh, company called Eve, and you sold that company, I read, before you were 30 years old. I mean, just absolutely incredible. And uh, we're going to talk a little bit more about how Minted has over 15,000 artists as part of its platform. And uh, definitely really excited to hear that you've got it based in over 100 countries um, from where all of these artists are. And all of the stuff that you're doing with different partnerships where um, I, I just have absolutely loved watching Minted grow to where it is today. So welcome, Miriam. Thank you. So great to be here. Thank you. So you and I were both part of the San Francisco Business Times dinner that we got to go to for uh, Bay Area women, actually Bay Area leaders. So most inspiring leaders um, at the end of last year, we got to sit down and actually have a little bit of dinner with our husbands and yes. and children, which was really, really nice. Uh, so I got to also meet your parents, and I I love. So tell me and tell everybody a little bit about your interesting childhood growing up. Sure, sure. Um, yeah, I'm, I'm, I have great parents. I'm very lucky. Um, my mom was born in Shanghai, and my dad was born in Tehran, Iran, and they met at Georgetown undergrad. So they're like a we're a made in America combo because everybody asks how on earth do these two people meet, and of course it's the U.S. That's how they, everybody meets, I guess. And so we um, we went overseas, and I grew up overseas because my dad was a development economist, um, specializing in agricultural development, really trying to help bring farming techniques to farmers all over the world. He's very much a guy made from the 60s, cut from the 60s cloth, really wanting to improve our world. And um, so we went all, all over, you know, Kuwait, Lebanon, Tanzania, um, and then eventually Iran, actually, uh, we were there during the revolution and left right after the revolution. Wow. And then Egypt, um, we were in Egypt until I was in uh, through ninth grade. And then I finally came back to the U.S. We were, we were always in American schools overseas, but um, 
I got to meet some really interesting people. As you can imagine, it was uh, really international. It's kind of an international melting pot. And, you know, I would meet Americans from every part of the U.S. in in the American schools. So my best friends in Egypt were from um, military bases all over the U.S., like from North Dakota to South Carolina, everywhere, Texas. And I also met Egyptians in my school. So it was like a really fascinating it was a very fascinating way to grow up. And I saw a lot of, I saw everything from, um, you know, the local poverty to, you know, social dynamics to, and, and and I think where I came away with was the, there are a lot of commonalities between people in terms of their driving forces mm-hmm. really is, I, I guess my big, one of my biggest takeaways is that you could read people's body language after a while. If even if you didn't understand the language, I would get used to watching people and trying to understand what was going on. And I had to really be, I think one other thing I learned was how to how to fit in no matter who I was talking to or where I was. So it's a kind of a bit of a chameleon training. Well, and being able to read people and uh, definitely great training to becoming an entrepreneur and understanding <laughs> your consumer, understanding being able to be a leader uh, and hire people, hire a great team, but also manage a great team. So which you've been so inspiring uh, watching you do all of that. So where do you think this entrepreneurship bug came from? Well, honestly, I didn't really realize I could be an entrepreneur until after I landed in the Bay Area after um, college. I, 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 nobody in my family was in business at all. I didn't even think about business as an occupation um, because my dad was an economist. My mom was a writer. And um, when I got to the Bay Area in 1993, following a boyfriend out here who became my husband, um, I got here and realized what was happening and fell in love with the consumer internet as a user. So I pulled up my AOL, like got my AOL dial-up account. I went to Amazon and I thought, this is the absolute coolest thing that I can click on these links and buy books and have them shipped to me. I just really fell in love with, with that first, the technology, the experience of e-commerce first. And then... Um, Thinking about what's for dinner, but you haven't had a minute to even think about it before now? Well, let's not make that mistake again. I have a tip for you. Factor. Stress-free, delicious, ready-to-eat meals, just perfect for spring and summer yumminess. Every fresh, never-frozen meal is chef-crafted, dietitian approved and ready to eat in just two minutes or less. Choose from a weekly menu of 35 options keto, vegan, veggie, or calorie smart, Factor has you covered. Discover more than 60 add-ons every week too, like breakfast and on-the-go lunch choices, snacks and beverages now too. Stay fueled and feel good all day long with whatever they are creating over at Factor for you. And the best part, each meal is ready to eat in just two minutes or less. And who wouldn't want that? Factor is your solution for fast premium meals without the need for cooking. Get started today and fuel up for your spring and summer goals. What are you waiting for? Head to factormeals.com slash golden50 and use code golden50 to get 50% off your first box plus 20% off your next box. That's code golden50 at factormeals.com slash golden50 to get 50% off plus 20% off your next box while your subscription is active. 
That's code GOLDEN50 at factormeals.com slash GOLDEN50 to get 50% off plus 20% off your next box while your subscription is active. In today's world, which I will admit can at times seem filled with too much of the wrong information, it's essential to find a good source that truly gets to the heart of what I want to know. I am super excited about our next sponsor as I've been a big fan of their content for some time now. That sponsor is The Washington Post. Their depth on topics from business to tech isn't just impressive, it's essential reading for me. Whether I'm catching up on the latest tech trends or understanding how the day's news truly impacts my family, The Washington Post is my trusted source. Let's talk specifics. Their business and tech coverage, absolutely top-notch. Just imagine having the most insightful articles at your fingertips, including the unparalleled AI reporting from Drew Harwell or the pulse on tech and online culture from Taylor Lorenz. And the best part? You can listen to articles just like you listen to this podcast, making it perfect for your busy lifestyle. I was just reading an article from one of my favorite Washington Post writers, Frances Stead Sellers. She covers entrepreneurs like myself, but also covers other interesting topics, including health, as well as some very interesting books. I also love getting their For You newsletter, which is their roundup of stories tailored just for my interests, right in my inbox every evening. The Washington Post app is Super well done, I think. It makes it incredibly easy to stay up to date and follow my favorite journalists on the go. And if you ever thought that the Washington Post is just about politics, think again. They cover everything under the sun, from climate and culture to crosswords and cooking, providing a world of surprising stories and vital insights. Okay, enough of the love fest that I have for the Washington Post. Here's the deal. Being a listener of The Kara Golden Show has its benefits, and this one is too good to miss. Now is the time to sign up for The Washington Post. Go to WashingtonPost.com slash Kara Golden to subscribe for just 50 cents per week for your first year. That's 80% off their typical offer. So this is truly a steal. Once again, that's WashingtonPost.com backslash Kara Golden to subscribe for just 50 cents per week for your first year. I'd also just seen a lot of companies through banking and consulting as, as, cause they were my clients. Mm-hmm. That was what I did after school. And I realized that, um, I thought it might be not in my personality to work f- for a long time, working my way up, up a corporate ladder. I thought that perhaps I wouldn't be given response, responsibilities that I thought perhaps I could take on earlier. I, I, it would be a long road to getting responsibility. And there was an element of me that thought, you know, maybe as a woman and maybe as a minority woman, that it would, might be a bit more difficult in corporate America to, to, to work my way up that ladder. If I were an entrepreneur, it's a little bit more anonymous. I thought I could create a product. And if they liked, if people liked it, they would just buy it. They probably wouldn't care too much about who was behind the scenes. So I thought that it would maybe be more meritocratic to start a company. And if I was succeeded, I succeeded. If I didn't, I didn't. It was all on me, you know? So that's kind of where the, how the thought, how my thinking was going at the time. So your first entrepreneurial, where you hung your shingle and, and really talk to us about that first company. Yeah. So the first company I was 
a second year student at the business school. And I decided not to interview with any companies for a job upon graduation. And I had this friend who had worked in, who had been my roommate in New York when we were both working in investment banking in New York. And I really loved this friend, Varsha. She was smart. She had a really high work ethic. And I thought, this is the person I really want to start a company with, but she's at McKinsey now and married in New York. So now I've got to convince her to leave her husband behind, leave McKinsey, <laughs> leave New York and come to California. So I had that my first job as an entrepreneur was to call her up and say, let's start a company together. There's a lot of funding available. There's tons of funding available. We've got to do something in, in the space and in, in the internet. And she... Um, she said, okay, but only if we do this company I like, which is this uh, cosmetics company online. So I said, fine, that's great. Let's do the, let's do your, let's, let's follow your idea because I don't really care. It's okay. Like I want to pick the, I want to pick the person I want to work with. And this cosmetics idea looks good enough. I, maybe I use cosmetics. Maybe I can figure this out. <laughs> and so we were really pretty young, but we raised $26 million to start this company called Eve.com, which was the first cosmetics company online. And we had to go convince like Chanel and huge like luxury brands to take their goods and put them on the internet for the very first time. And they would, they, you know, we'd go into these meetings and they would say, you know, are you guys gray market? Like, you know, you're going to sell off to, the, the biggest fear of the luxury brands is you're going to sell their goods off the back of a truck. Mm -hmm. So you, you, you had to really sell. So we're like, you know, 26 basically trying to sell big luxury brands on moving onto the internet for the first time. That was my first experience. And we ended up selling the company about uh, two weeks before the NASDAQ plunged. We sold the company for cash. Like literally in April, 2000, we closed the deal. And um, two weeks later, the whole market fell apart and started just imploding. That's my story. Amazing. So, that, so that's that, what happened. That's yeah. incredible. What do you think was the biggest lesson you learned in building that first company that you still think about today in building your company? One of the things that I really remember is that we started and then venture capital firms backed five more competitors to launch into the business right after us. And so we had a ton of competition and most people would think, geez, this is really difficult. You know, mm -hmm. like I, I felt like at the end of the day, if we kept our focus, really kept our heads down, we could maintain a lead and not get too distracted looking over our shoulder at the competitors. That was one big lesson is not to constantly be looking at your competitors, but really thinking about focusing on your own business. It's, it's healthy to look and understand the competition, but to become obsessed with it and always look over your shoulder or always start to sort of move in their direction is not, I think is not healthy. So we were able to get ahead actually, even though we had a very slim lead, um, we built it to like 10 million in the first year in sales, which was I think pretty good. And 2 million uniques a month in 99, which was a pretty big, a pretty big number. I guess the other one I'd learned, the other lesson I learned was when we did our kind of classical five forces, Michael Porter analysis, like, is this a good business to start or not? One of the big problems was that it looked pretty concentrated. The Estee Lauder companies owned over 50% of the cosmetics market. And mm -hmm. if you followed the rules of the Michael Porter analysis, you'd say, don't start this business. Mm -hmm. It's a bad business because like there's too much concentration on the supply side. Well, we went forward anyway, and I was nervous about it, but it turned out that there were all these little cosmetics brands like um, um, Lush or, or, or NARS or uh, benefit that really needed distribution and were getting shut out of the department store. So the department store sales were not really reflective 
of what could have been. So it was almost that the data was wrong, you know, that once you put all these little brands on the internet, they started selling like crazy. Totally. Yeah. And, and you, I mean, it and was actually, really, if you couldn't get a counter space at Macy's, you were not that big, right? I mean, that was kind right. of- Right. And you had to pay a lot of money for that counter space. So as a little brand, it was really hard to break in. So of course their sales weren't reflected because they weren't able to sell through the channel. You know, the channel was blocking them. So it turned out the big, one of the big lessons there is like what looks small in the real world. If you aggregate all of the demand online for something that is quote unquote small, you actually can build a pretty nice, a bit, pretty big business on the internet. Something that looks small can actually be pretty big. Minted was like that too. And which we can talk about, but yeah, so yeah that was another, so that was another big lesson. Yeah. So after selling Eve, you went on to create Minted. And so mm-hmm. how did, like, how did, was this more in line with kind of what you were most interested in and obviously really focused on the, you know, the crowdsource design marketplace concept, which I can only imagine you trying to get people to really understand it. I mean, I, you know, you talk about a visionary entrepreneur and I just, I, I thought a lot about that whole concept when I was doing some research on you and I just thought, wow. I mean, can you imagine like you walking into those first meetings saying, okay, crowdsource? And they were like, huh, yeah. what? <laughs> I mean, <laughs> yeah, it was very difficult, especially because I was crowdsourcing design for stationary products and talking to male investors. You know, it was very, totally. it was very, you know, and I was, I was saying, no, 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 the design really could be and should be a lot better. But there's a, it's very hard to quantify that, right? To a financially minded investor what does that mean? The design needs to be better. It's very hard to explain that. Um, you know, it's very hard to actually explain what better design looks like when you're talking, you have to almost show people. So you could picture it's the, the challenge is picturing it in my head, but not being able to explain it to people. So it was significantly harder to, to raise capital for Minted than it had been for Eve. Eve was a very simple concept. You stick all the makeup in a warehouse and you just ship it. Mm-hmm. Right. And even then people were like, no one's going to buy cosmetics online, Mariam, you know, like it's just not going to happen. People need to try it on. It's not happening. This is a bad idea with minted. It was, I don't understand this crowdsourcing thing. What is this design competition (laughs) and stationary? No one's going to buy that online either. So it was, it was very, very, it was a, I think it would be, I would call it an uphill battle to raise capital for minted at the beginning. But, um, also we were, we raised right before the recession. I think like maybe four weeks afterwards, Lehman Brothers failed right after we had raised our first round. So we had to make that money work for a long, long time. Um, but the um, there with Minted, I was just captivated with, I, I mean, I do love great design. And I was one of those people who would go into a stationary store and touch the paper all the time, like mm-hmm. the really nice cotton, cottony paper with a letterpress, like really beautiful imprint. So it's a little bit of a paper nerd to begin with. Then so that I think it was fundamentally more interesting to me that I could empower talent potentially that was hidden out there all over the world. Like my, my mom's side of the family are all graphic designers and artists. And, um, I was thinking about them, you know, like my experiences talking to them about what, what their experiences have been like. And, um, fundamentally was more interested in that than in cosmetics, for example, cosmetics was great, but this was a, a chance to really, you know, find independent people yeah, and follow my passion. Exactly. (laughs) Follow my passion for design and for working with creative people that I I really enjoy working with, um, creative people and, 
helping them navigate the world of business, I guess, is, is something I enjoy. So interesting. So I read somewhere that you mentioned that the intersection of the rise of social media and the recession created the perfect window to start mm-hmm. Minted. So what do you think about today? Uh, you know, there's Web 3.0 as such a buzzy mm-hmm. topic. I mean, do you think we're seeing these windows right now that are forming that are kind of the perfect storm to go and start new businesses. Uh, and, you know, I'd love to kind of hear your perspective. Yes. As someone who surfed the web, the wave of web one and then web two, web one was eve.com, web two was minted and web three for me is a venture studio that I've just started called Heretic Ventures that I'm running on the side of, of minted. And that is 100% focused on the creator economy with a strong tie to foundation and web three, meaning um, the ideas of decentralization, the idea that decision-making will become more and more decentralized, the idea of equity and fairness um, for artists and creators of all kinds, the idea that, for example, we all, we all search on Google right now, right? Mm-hmm. If we search on Google, um, that turns into data that actually accrues to Google, right? That, that, that becomes data that Google, Google can use. It's not something that we are paid for as for our search, you know, for, for sure. searching, or let's say you post an image on, on Instagram to share with your friends, there is something you're doing there that is creating, you're creating, but you're not necessarily. So that, so the, so the uh, argument goes in web three, this is the argument that the platforms are taking and they're, they're getting a lot of information about you and they're growing, but the people contributing are not actually earning. So that's the, one of the big, you know, rubs that people have and where, where the web three, you know, web three culture is going is sort of decentralization, disintermediation of these platforms, uh, direct ownership, uh, connection of creators with their consumers, their fan bases directly to earn money. And then crypto, or let's say um, you've heard everyone talks about NFTs. Mm-hmm. Well, what's the big benefit of an NFT? Well, I sort of see it as a, um, a way to create ownership in things like music or in writing or in any kind of any kind of creative content product that can then be um, fractionalized or shared between people and can create a a um, payment system or ownership structure that charges up or turbocharges any community because you can imagine if you can imagine if um, shoppers on um, and buyers on a market on a, on a current marketplace were actually rewarded over time by buying and selling on a platform that they actually earn a little bit of the company. Well, NFTs and all that stuff that has arisen around the blockchain gives companies a chance to actually give give away bits of ownership to anyone who participates in the community, thereby hopefully giving, you know, turbocharging the activity in that community because you have a whole incentive structure you can build. So that is, to me, very exciting. Um, and so that's Super why exciting. I've got this happening in Web3. And yeah. so what are you doing with this company then? So this is this is a company that produces companies. So mm-hmm. we have a venture studio where we, have, awesome. where we are circling around certain themes and launching companies with CEOs out of the studio. So we are, um, we are hiring into the studio right now. Um, so please check us out, heretic.ventures. Um, but uh, we, um, 
we uh, we are going to be a, a core team at a st- at the studio that puts puts businesses out, finds a CEO for those businesses, and then launches them. And then they, the the we will seed those businesses with some starting capital. And then of course those businesses graduate, and then they have their own lives. So it's a lot of babies flying the nest. Let's put it that a lot of like baby companies flying the nest, which is what I enjoy the zero to one phase. That's what I was just going to say. So is that I always <laughs> talk to entrepreneurs about uh, kind of what is the phase that they really like the most? You love that early, early um, stage. I mean, I think you've definitely proven that you can do more than that and and grow companies. Mm-hmm. But I mm-hmm. also like the really early um, stage and the creating and the building. I, I view you definitely as an incredible builder. Would you agree that that's your favorite? Yeah. I like this. I like this, like looking at this blank sheet of paper and, and thinking of something new and really figuring out how to design it in a way that it has the best DNA so that it, it, it's a really self-propelling, self-perpetuating vehicle. So I, I really like the company business model design phase, um, and then breaking it through into getting some traction for the business. Um, it is really a scary part of business. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I would say sometimes you like, you really have to combat your fear all the time. It's something where you have to talk yourself into a state of like calm a lot. It's just, it's just one of it's scary and also fun. It's fun because it, small teams, small groups of people, very, very curated groups of people you get to work with. Cause it's like, um, you know, you, you're not managing teams of a thousand. You're you're cherry picking a couple people to start with, and that's really fun. Um, and of course, you get to redesign from a nice clean slate, which is beautiful. On the other hand, it can be very scary, right? Because you're not sure if it's going to work. You're trying to sell people on this crazy, these crazy dreams, selling cosmetics online. It sounded like nuts, you know. Totally. And same with <laughs> crowdsourcing sounded nuts. So I just have to keep reminding myself everything I think I've done so far. People have said it's just not going to work. Yeah, you know. But yeah. but then it does. So I I love that. That's great. Uh, so just one, qu- uh, well, actually two more quick questions on on minted. So you expanded from stationary to home decor. Mm-hmm. Um, you had an art, yeah, an mm-hmm. art. And uh, so when do you decide to do that? When do you decide to go into new categories? And uh, for any founders yeah. who are out there starting to think about expansion, I mean, like. How do you make those decisions? Yeah, that's a that's a great question because I think <clears throat> we could have gone and just st- stuck with stationary and built a certain size business within the stationary total addressable market. And that size of business might be, let's say, a $10 billion market mm-hmm. in the US. Um, and then we could build it to a certain size and sell it for a certain amount. Or there was a fork in the road that said, we can go raise more capital. We've realized that the community is actually not stationary designers that we form. There are all kinds of people in the community that are actually have day jobs that are not creative. And on top of that, there are artists. So what we've done is actually build a community that could be pointed at different things. We're going to go raise venture capital. And then what we've got to do is um, create a broader design marketplace and go for a bigger TAM, total adjustable market, and a different out- size outcome. So I think it's right sizing the capital you took in to the kind of outcome you're tr- like the exit value you're mm-hmm. trying to sell the company for or take it public. And I guess I would say to your listeners, like if you're like, it, it really is about thinking about um, how much capital you want to raise uh, and what and whether that makes sense in light of the 
total market and what your exit opportunity might be in terms of the value of the business. And that's kind of the decision we faced. And we decided to take the fork in the road that was the let's go into a bigger, broader design marketplace and leverage the talents of all these people in different ways and build a bigger community. So tell me a story in building building Minted where you faced mm-hmm. a huge challenge, um, something that was super unexpected um, or there was a big loss. Uh, and what lessons did you learn and take away from that? <laughs> okay, so the, the one that really jumps out is that a big company wanted to buy us. And so what they decided to do was surprise attack and buy 100% buy the printer that served us, that did half of our volume. And to tell us that about two weeks before the Christmas season and then force us to sell. (laughs) And so um, they called me, the CEO called me on my cell phone, said, hey, you know, I really want you to see this. I don't want you to see the news first, but we bought X printer and the news is coming out tomorrow. And they, and he knew full well, of course, that it was a 50, that they served us, that they did more than 50% of our volume. And it was October, you know, and you can't in this business go sign up a printer and integrate, do the API integration very well and scale for the holidays with quality and precision because we're a make on demand business at peak, it's very difficult, actually. Um, it's hard to do that right before the holiday season. Even if people want your business, they don't want you to do that in October. Sure. <laughs> and so um, that was rough. And so then it turned out when I went in to talk to him that he was like, I want to I buy this business. And I had to um, bluff a little bit and run around, try to find another printer really fast and integrate. And, and sure enough, they pulled the rug out from under us after if they figured out that we were looking for another printer and we were just out on the street cold, like after, Ugh. you know, with like, it was just really bad. But it's a lesson and of always having options though, too. Right? Absolutely. So first you have to like, make sure that you don't have a single point of failure or even like that 50, 50 was too high. It was left as vulnerable for attack. We had to be more spread out in terms of our printer base. Who knew that people would want to buy the company so badly that they would do something like that? I mean, it was just, we hadn't conceived of that, but it can happen. Listeners out there, it can happen to you. So I would say, you know, protecting yourself from attack like that. Um, And then just, um, I I guess I would say... um, we just weren't ready to sell. We felt like we had more growth. We we have had much, much more growth since that moment. And we had conviction. So we stuck with our conviction and we um and we decided not to panic. <laughs> and we, you know, we all pushed through it together. My great, great, great engineering team and fulfillment team pull, pulled together and they, they still call it printer getting at the company. Um and there's still some of the some of the people are still there after this is like eight years later. Um, people are still there. So they still talk about printer getting, but, um, I would say just like pushing through a really bad competitive attack. Um, and I guess I am a little bit as a result of it, uh, interested sometimes in antitrust because I feel like a big company should not be able to like crush little, little upstarts like us like that suddenly. Um, so I, it has made me more interested in that in that area. Super interested. Uh, yeah, mm-hmm. this happened in the beverage industry. I remember uh, one of the coconut water companies had a very similar situation where if somebody went and bought up all the coconut 
uh, farms in this one area that they were supplying from. And we didn't have any coconut water, so it wasn't our issue. But I remember watching this whole thing happen and really thinking about the antitrust aspect of it Mm -hmm. and uh, and how you can... um, how can how can you stop it in another country as well? I mean, that's mm-hmm. a whole other yeah, that's really tough topic. So, well, that is yeah. um, amazing, amazing advice and a great story to learn from. So, tell me and the listeners how we can follow you and all your progress. Sure, I'm reachable at uh, on Instagram. You can find me on Instagram and Twitter at mnafisi, just my first initial last name. And you can also see, go to minted.com or heretic.ventures. Very, very cool. Yeah. Well, we'll have all of that in the notes as well. But thank you so much, Miriam, for taking the time thank to you. sit down thank and you, talk Cara. with us. And you're such an incredible example of a great founder, a great entrepreneur, a great CEO and leader. So I uh, really appreciate everything that you've shared with us today. And thanks, everybody, for listening to this episode. Please subscribe to The Kara Golden Show uh, so that you get to hear amazing people like Miriam. And please be sure to send in those five-star ratings. It really, really makes a difference in the algorithm. And find me on all social channels at Kara Golden. Uh, Don't forget to pick up a copy of my book, Undaunted, if you have not had a chance to read it. And we're here every Monday and Wednesday. Thanks, everybody, for listening. Have an excellent rest of the week. And thanks again, Miriam, for your time. Thanks for having me. Before we sign off, I want to talk to you about fear. People like to talk about fearless leaders, but achieving big goals isn't about fearlessness. Successful leaders recognize their fears and decide to deal with them head on in order to move forward. This is where my new book, Undaunted, comes in. This book is designed for anyone who wants to succeed in the face of fear, overcome doubts, and live a little undaunted. Order your copy today at undauntedthebook.com and learn how to look your doubts and doubters in the eye and achieve your dreams. For a limited time, you'll also receive a free case of Hint Water. Do you have a question for me or want to nominate an innovator to Spotlight? Send me a tweet at Kara Golden and let me know. And if you like what you heard, please leave me a review on Apple Podcasts. You can also follow along with me on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, and LinkedIn at Kara Golden. Golden. Thanks for listening.